Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. Like last week, tonight is, is, a, is a broadcast that I started with about 11 years ago and, and also became the basis for one of my chapters. And, and what it is was my discovery in working in wilderness therapy where I, I saw that there was a great deal of structure and I saw that kids could adapt to that. And yet I saw this kind of conflict between structure and strictness and control. And I was wondering why so many of our clients, so many of our students felt free in the wilderness and felt like in some ways, in some ways, it was much easier than it was at home, even though the level of strictness and structure was high. And so I started to kind of think about this idea of, of what it means to be controlling, what it essentially means to feel coerced into something and controlled, and then what was the opposite of that. And I came up with the idea of influential, impactful parenting or, or direction. So with that, let me get right into it. This is a quote from one of our former therapists. He said, to the extent that you try to control your children, you fail at influencing them. Um, and so while we all want the same outcomes for your children in terms of symptom reduction, mental health, awareness, healthy coping, it is our attempts to try to control that, to, to aim for that at times that provokes the defense, that gives them the sense that they're being treated like an object. And, and in many cases, they're willing to do things that even are, are harmful for themselves just to establish their own individuality, their own sense of independence from us. And so, again, I want to talk about that in, intersect. What I saw at the parent groups that I started doing many, many years ago was this, this blame that parents came in with. This idea that when we did parent education, when we talked about parent work, that there was this simple translation for many parents that we were blaming them for what their children were doing. And what I talk about constantly is the, the, the trick is to be able to be accountable, aware, um, be willing to make yourself a project and improve, recognizing that, that any improvement you make as a parent, as a person, will have ripple effects, will have impact on others. But to, to draw a line between that and, and the idea of cause and effect, that you can control it, that you're the, the, the simple cause of problems or success in your child. Um, I saw, of course, early on about how the mental health could, can oftentimes be reduced to the idea of how we deal with the problem of pain. And as parents, of course, we're, we're wired to protect our children from pain, right? I mean, when our children are, are young, especially, we do all that we can to keep them alive and to protect them. And so it's, it's, it's a difficult evolution for all of us to find a way to kind of separate ourselves from that as they get older, to let them you know, learn from their mistakes, to tolerate their pain, and for us to sit with it. I call it making peace with our empathic misery that we feel as parents. 
I always say one of the hardest sounds to listen to, for example, on an airplane, is a crying child. But the worst sound to hear on an airplane is my crying child. Right? The trigger that my crying child has on me is, is the most severe. And of course, with other people's children, I, because of the detachment that I have, the objectivity that I have, I can see the value in them feeling and struggling with their pain. Feeling is a powerlessness that comes for, for parents and for children. And, and really, for children, finding a way to, to empower them, but also to hold them accountable. And for parents to find a way to empower them, to not feel so much blame, to, to speak their truth, to find their authenticity. And at the same time, recognize what they don't have control over in this process. And then lastly, of course, is the impact of fear. And in some ways, and this, this is a, an oversimplification, but in parenting, fear is the enemy, right? Anxiety is the enemy. Our fear ought to inform us it can wake us up and it can arouse us to, to do some work to, to, to search for a solution. But if it takes control, if it drives us, if it overshadows our, our rational thinking, our rational mind, if we operate from that place of anxiety, of, of worry and fear, we lose all creativity. We lose objectivity. We lose the capacity to see and to hear our children. So that's what I was learning in, in my early years in, in, in parent groups, parent workshops, and, and where this lesson came from. So the question I often ask, get asked, is why focus on, on parents? First of all, because helping a parent create and maintain a sense of inner peace and empowerment works, it's its own reward. And it also has wonderful impact on children. Right? Regardless of circumstances, if a parent can make their inner peace, their, their, their inner clarity, reduce anxiety and, and worry and regret, if they, can, if they can manage all of that somehow, some way, then they have more resources available to, the, to their children. And I say the same thing with children. Right? I encourage children to consider the fact that your parents may never change. Ne never change as much as you would like them to or in the ways that you would like them to. And so your job becomes finding inner peace and empowerment in the process. It's really the same messages with both. I'm telling both the parents and the children, don't rely on the other one to change for you to have this, this serenity that you're seeking, but try to work on and find your serenity to the best of your ability, knowing that when a child struggles, suffers, gets into trouble, that we're going to be affected by that. But try to try to manage, try to make your serenity your responsibility. I say that to both sides in, in that equation. Sometimes there's this idea in relationships. I hear this from the students and clients as much as I do the parents or even when I'm working with couples, this idea that we need to meet halfway. And part of what I've said over the years is the only way that, that to really ensure the connection is to meet somebody all the way. Usually, in relationships, when people talk about meeting each other halfway, they end up just about 10% short of each other. And then end up in a debate about the other person having not gone all the way. That's why, for example, we ask parents to write a letter of awareness, a letter of accountability. And, and parents fear that if they do that, that their children are going to beat them up, 
hold them hostage with it, right? Bang them over the head with it. And what I say is they, they, they can't if you don't let them. When you surrender as a parent and say, I'm sorry, I know I messed up, I could be making a mistake. I talk about it in my book about being the idiot parent. When you, when you practice being an idiot parent, your children never argue with you. And so if your child comes back at you with that, tries to hold you hostage with that, you just let it go through you. Right? I've been thinking about this idea a lot lately that if we make, if we can make peace with our own darkness, with our own mental illness, with our own mess, right? If we can explore, come into contact, be on speaking terms with our own inner darkness, we really can be there for other people in a more profound way. And what that looks like is if I know that I'm a, that I'm a mess and I've come to terms with that, made peace with that, I'm on speaking terms with that part of me, if you get mad at me or think I'm wrong, I'm okay with that. I'll say uh, jokingly that you, you don't even know the half of it. But most of us are, are so... We struggle so much to do that because of the shame and blame that we've grown up with. It's in the, the water that we drink, the air that we breathe, that we think we need to be right. And what that looks like is proving our point, justifying our decisions, citing our credentials, giving examples, relying on professionals and their credentials versus just coming to the table and saying, it's my best guess and I could be wrong. That's the most powerful, empowered place to be as a person and as a parent. And it leaves a fantastic model for our children. Then they get to be people. They get to be a self. And so when they go out in the world, and we all worry about our children's susceptibility to influences, to peer pressure. But if we model, model, if we teach, if we support that everybody gets to be a person, have feelings, thoughts, and beliefs, those that get honored, then our children are less likely to be knocked off their feet, right? We, we inoculate them by modeling this to peer pressure and to other negative influences. I talk about this idea of the worst possible outcome. Um, it's, it's a really kind of a radical acceptance idea, right? Think of a situation and think of the worst possible outcome. And it's not very complicated to think about what that could be for some of our children, right? And so trying to make peace with the fact that we can't control it. Ultimately, we have very little control in this world. And so our job becomes, like the serenity prayer says, developing the courage to, to, to control the things that we can control, which is us, simply put. That's the work that people figured out a long time ago, that when you're in a relationship with an alcoholic or with somebody that's self-sabotaging, that it's fundamentally important to focus on what you can control and to let go of what you can't. It, it's not a passive stance. When I talk about influential parenting tonight, it's not a passive, laissez-faire stance. It is an assertive 
courageous, active stance that we take. Like I said, an important question to ask yourself is, what is, the way of, what is in the way of me knowing my truth? There is where your work lies. I talk about it this way. If you can imagine the ideal. Sometimes I, I use Gandhi or, or, or Martin Luther King Jr. or uh, Yoda as an example. Like, how would Yoda, what would Yoda do in this situation? You can choose anybody that you want and everybody has different heroes. How would this person, how would that person react in this situation in life, in relationships? And it's over here. And how do I tend to react? I'm holding my two hands out about eight inches apart from each other. So there's how I ought to react or what's the optimal way to react. And there's how I do react, how I'm inclined to react. And the work is the space in between. It's not a shameful piece of work. It's just, why can't I be compassionate? Why can't I be patient? Why can't I be curious? Still being assertive. Why can't I do those things? And that's where my work is. And often, of course, that work is in our history, right? It's in what what made us what we are. I took some quotes to illustrate this idea of the fact that the problems in our lives are not out there, but in here. From Gandhi, I want to show people that the only devils worth fighting are the ones running around in their own hearts. From the the famous psychiatrist and therapist Carl Jung, everything that irritates us about others can lead us to a better understanding of ourselves. From the King James New Testament, and why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? First cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to cast the mote out of thy brother's eye. From Cahil Gibran's The Prophet, Your children are not your children. Seek not to make them like you, but seek to be like them. And from the Systematic Training and Effective Parenting Manual, The greatest challenge in parenting teens is to focus on changing yourself, not your teenager. And I could make that list a hundred times longer. Right, The greatest thinking is that the real challenge, the real heroic journey, if you will, is inward. Looking at oneself. No matter what the story is, the heroic journey is always inward. I, I mentioned, I made reference to the serenity prayer. This is something in, in my group that we end every group with. And sometimes I call it a serenity meditation because I don't want the, the students become re, really reactive when you talk about God in prayer sometimes. And so I'll just call it a meditation. They can skip the God part. But the serenity prayer that's said at the end of every 12-step meeting, at the end of every group that, that I do in my group, goes like this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. You know, I thought about this a long time ago, and, and virtually... I don't know if it's literally, but virtually the most consistent thing in every 12-step meeting on earth is the recitation of the serenity prayer, right? A lot of different formats at AA and NA and Al-Anon and Codependence Anonymous meetings, a lot of variation. And perhaps the most consistent thing is the serenity prayer. And my thought is why? Why is that so important? 
Why do we think this an important element in the, the healing of addiction, the healing of codependency? There must be something critical in this mantra, in this prayer that relates to it. And, and we talk about this all the time with the kids. It applies to parents and it applies to all of us. Accepting things we cannot change, which is in Al-Anon, you substitute that with other people. Accept things I cannot change, other people. The courage to say, change the things I can, me. And the amazing thing, I say this to the students all the time, the amazing thing is we're so psychologically impaired. We're so easily tripped up that we actually have to pray for the wisdom to know the difference between me and someone else. And I find that to be true of, of, of parents. And, and I say to myself, I think when you're good at manipulating people, and many of us are, many of us, we're in sales, right? We're, we're influencers. We're entrepreneurs. We're bosses. We're leaders, right? Those all require an ability to, to manipulate people. To be a salesperson is to manipulate somebody. And I don't mean manipulation in a, in a negative way. It's just to, to change a mind, to inspire somebody. And when you get really good at manipulating people, it's easy to let your, your, the, the muscle in you that, that, that tolerates things that you can't change, it's easy for that to atrophy. I had a parent ask me today when talking about their son's capacity to manip manipulate because he's gifted at it. And the question is why? Why does he do it that much? And first of all, because it works, of course. And second of all, his hyper-focus on controlling, selling something to the parents, trying to get them to change. And he's really, really gifted at it. Is in part because the part of them that has to deal with frustration that has to deal with disappointment, that has to feel, really, has atrophied. And so this idea, this mantra is that we have to learn to tolerate things that we can't control and absolutely courageously make it our practice to work on changing ourselves. So control versus influence. It's really the difference between managing the outcome and managing the message or the intention or your own behavior, right? The difference between managing the reaction that somebody has and stating your truth. Think of it in simple terms like honesty. If you're letting go of the, the outcome, you're going to tell the truth more often. If you're trying to control the outcome, you're going to hide or bend or exaggerate the truth or lie. That's why we lie why we exaggerate because we're trying to manage the audience it really comes from this this codependency this lack of, of awareness of the separation between ourselves and others our, our, the lack of our own intrapsychic differentiation right in other words the development of an independent self we have a hard time remaining independent of our children and allowing that and modeling that. And it comes and is exacerbated by our fears and anxiety. When we operate from a place of fear instead of a place of, of faith, acceptance, and love, we tend to try to control. 
And, and like I started off hinting at the beginning of this broadcast, control and influence are not a measure of structure or strictness, but of emotional coercion. This is the, the crux of tonight's broadcast. That when we use shame, fear, intimidation, I talked about it the other day, when we make our children responsible for our happiness and serenity, when we talk to them in our letters and our communication about stop doing this or that. I had a student say to me yesterday that his goal in the program was to make his parents proud. And I said, that's not your job. I gave him the example of Bob Dylan. When Bob Dylan's son had a number one album in the 1990s, a reporter asked him the question. He said, how do you feel about your son Jacob and his success? And his response was, it's irrelevant. And I thought Bob was just being a pain in the butt like he is sometimes with the media. But I thought about it more and more and realized it doesn't matter to him. When we stop making it our child's job to make us proud or, or, or blaming them for us being disappointed, they can start to develop a self. And if we become safe in that way, I know some of you on this broadcast tonight, I can see your names. You've done this work. You've, you've separated yourself. You've made yourself quieter in your child's mind. And your child is more likely, you know this, you would, you would testify to this. Your child calls you when they're struggling more. I always say this, you, you want to be your child's first phone call in a crisis or after they've made a mistake. You want to be safe enough that they call you rather than that, that friend who might not have their best interest in, in mind, but who they know is not going to judge them or say, I told you so or freak out with anxiety and fear, right? That's the goal is to be a resource to your child, right? To be the first phone call. Control is, like I said, it's, a, it's more of a measure of emotional coerciveness. Shame, guilt, fear, intimidation, emotional responsibility. That's why we've, we've steered away from having the letters, the first letter, at Evoke being about how you were impacted, right? It's, it's silly. There's no scientific basis that suggests that telling your children how you feel promotes healthy development. If the goal is to get them to change, right? Stop using drugs so I'm not afraid. Stop stealing so I'm not disappointed. Right? Go to school. Be a good citizen so that I'm proud. That doesn't promote healthy child development. It promotes de dependence, a lack of differentiation, a susceptibility to, to a loss of self, really, but to peer pressure and all other kinds of influences. So we take a step back. We work on our own differentiation. We get curious with our children. We watch them. We listen. We, we celebrate the successes and the failures and the struggles. We see the value in both. We show up vulnerable, honest, and authentic in our own struggles, our own not knowing. Control is more rigid, right? There's a lack of what, what, what attachment theorists would say. Daniel Siegel talks about in his book, Parenting from the Inside Out, controlling parenting has a lack of response flexibility. We're not operating from our, our higher 
brain operations, our, our prefrontal cortex. We're operating from the, the, the lower brain, the primitive brain, the reptilian brain, the fight or flight part of our brain. Again, control comes from an mesh place where our children's success, as Daniel Siegel says in that book, that it's almost as if when their child is succeeding that it's happening to the parent or vice versa. When the child is failing, it's happening to the parent. That's how enmeshed we can become. And by the way, I won't go off on attachment too much tonight, but, but to be clear, enmeshment is not uh, a, like a heightened form of attachment. Enmeshment is abandonment. Enmeshment, by definition, does not recognize the other. The child becomes an extension of us, a reflection of us, a mirror to us where we see ourselves. We measure ourselves. And all of us have struggled with this because all of us grew up in this kind of soup. We struggle with, you've told me this at meetings over, over the years. You know, when your child is, when you send your child to evoke, when they're at a therapeutic program or school afterwards and the other parents at a dinner party are talking about their kids getting into Ivy League schools or, or moving on to, to successful, quote unquote, stages of their life. Where do you stand? How hard is it to talk about my child's in, in treatment because of substance abuse issues or depression or severe anxiety? Or school refusal, right? It's 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 hard to show up that way because there's so much pressure in our society to, to to have parents measure themselves by their children, and 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 we know, objectively speaking, it's not it's not optimal. It's not what we strive for. It's not what our practice is. But it's definitely our mother tongue for most of us. You look for balance outside of yourself. So often, giving you the example that I, I stated earlier about the father, about the parents talking about the, the child and, and his manipulation, so oftentimes we're trying to manipulate our children to convince them that we're right, to talk them out of their feelings because of our own insecurities, right? Instead of listening to your child and their frustration and anger and disappointment about a, a behavior, a boundary that you have with response to a behavior, a greater sense of balance would look like saying, I get it. From where you stand, it makes perfect sense. And by the way, I might be wrong. That's what it looks like to have internal balance versus trying to convince somebody because of your own self-doubt in the process. Blurred boundaries. It's back to that enmeshment thing. Inconsistent boundaries. Kind of being blown to and fro by your children and their emotional response. Blurs our boundaries. Controlling parent is threatening, intimidating, undervaluing choice, too much energy, punitive. All of those become excuses for boundaries, right? We would love to coerce our children into cooperative behavior so we don't have to practice boundaries, right? Because boundaries are harder. If our children agree with us, if they subscribe to what we're selling, if they cooperate with what we want, then we won't have to do the hardest work of all, which is set courageous and clear, clear boundaries. And oftentimes, like I always talk about, this goes back to your family of origin rules, messages, wounds. It's true for all of us. Finding out what's your business and what's, your not, what's not your business. You know, in Al-Anon, they say this, what you think about me is, not my, is none of my business. And that could be true I teach that to the students. 
What your parents think about you is none of your business. And I could say the same things to parents. What your children think about you is none of your business. The, the, the slogan means that, of course, we listen to others' feedback. We listen to others' love and expressions of concern. Again, we, we, we try it on for size. We, we let it inform us. But it can't be the reason. It can't be what we depend on. It can't be our definition of, of truth. Right? That leaves us dependent and, and holy without a self. Like I said at the beginning, children can adjust to high levels of structure. I've seen them thrive with ve- within very strict structures. What they often cannot adjust to is the parent who tries to impose a belief, opinion, philosophy, or feeling onto his child. So influential parenting is, is born out of self-awareness, honesty with yourself. Right? That's the, the kind of guiding idea, principle, virtue of influential parenting. That's where it starts. You can own your feelings, own your boundaries. I, I always say this. When I talk about capacity and containment, listening and seeing, so many times parents will, will think that, that that needs to come at the cost of setting a boundary. You can set a boundary. Just own it. I jokingly say all the time that there are times when if my child walked in, interrupted the webinar and said to me, Dad, you're an effing jerk. There are times in my life where I would say, hey, I'm so sorry. Let's talk about that. Tell me more about that. Right? Because my my resources, my emotional capacity, my bandwidth is, is at its peak. And there's other times, of course, when my children are chewing their food too loud or breathing too loud and I want to strangle them. So my capacity waxes and wanes. My bandwidth waxes and wanes. I can set a boundary and say I've had enough. I can set a boundary and say it's not okay for you to talk to me that way. Or, or, or this is my limit. But, but the important thing is just to own it. It's mine. It's my self-care. It's what I need. And then your children have to do this, this weird thing when you own it. Not because you're right, but because you're you. They have to learn how to deal with a human being, another person. Dealing with people is hard. But when we, when we try to be selfless, which is an interesting phrase, right? When we aspire to being selfless as parents, our children don't have to learn to deal with another person. They don't learn frustration, tolerance, and delay of gratification. Empathy. It's ironic, isn't it? That trying to be selfless, trying to model selfless, imagining that we're selfless, that our children learn a lack of empathy, whereas when we are quote-unquote selfish, that is we take care of ourselves, have our boundaries, own our limitations, our children learn empathy because they have to deal with an other. You focus on self-regulation, right? I'm much more interested in having a discussion with a parent about their relapse than I am about their child's relapse. Same with your child. I'm much more interested about having a discussion with your child about their relapse and not your relapse because that's the thing that you can control. Influential parenting is assertive. It's brave, courageous. It's a willingness to feel pain, to suffer. All of these are hallmarks of of influential parenting. It's balanced versus rigid with connection. 
right? There's a balance between connecting, containing, listening, seeing, and assertive boundary keeping. Influential parenting values autonomy. I talk a lot about this idea that that I, I try to work with a lot of parents to value the mistakes, to value the setbacks, to value the detours. And I say, unfortunately, and this is really true. This is not a technique. Most of what I know, most of what I have to offer that's of any value to, to parents, to, to friends, to couples that I work with, to to the children that I treat in our program is a result of the mistakes that I've made and the lessons that have come out of that. And I've heard professors from Harvard or Yale talk about mental health and addiction. And what I know is many of them don't have much experience with it at all. They're well-credentialed. They're absolutely well-researched. But they haven't sat on the other couch enough to really know it and talk about it. And that's what this work is about. It's about the inner exploration of self. And and really, really, I don't know if they're all the answers, but virtually all the answers are there. Not outside of us. Making serenity your project and not your child's project. They're really horrible at managing and being responsible for your serenity. And I know you know that. So why do we make them responsible for it? Why do we ask them to carry it, to tend to it? And that, that idea comes from Al-Anon. Make, serenity your, make your serenity your project, not your child, not your alcoholic spouses, not your abusive parents or siblings. Make it your project. And sometimes it's, it's harder than others. Some people are gifted in their ability to disrupt other people's serenity. We learn to let go and trust ourselves as parents by focusing on our intentions, feelings, and objectives rather than obsessing over whether our actions will accomplish those objectives. So it's not inactive. It's just a different project. Here's the crux. Here's the model. I have, I have written on the slide, if you're watching the, the video version of this, the, the webinar version of this, if you're not and you're watching the podcast, you can go to, to, to this chapter in my book or look this up later. But it's this, it's this double axis. And on one axis, I have controlling and influential parenting. And on another axis, the horizontal axis, I have strictness and permissive. And I make the point that strictness is not equivalent to controlling and permissive is not equal to influential. It's more complex than that. And I'll say it simply this way. This is the first thing that I realized. Most permissive parents are controlling. I'm going to say that again. Most permissive parents that I've dealt with in my career are controlling. They use guilt, Shame, fear, lecturing, nagging, intimidating, repetition, begging, pleading, demanding, threatening to try to get their child to do it, to choose something, to, to follow a certain idea or course. And many strict parents aren't necessarily controlling. Sometimes that can be interwoven with it, but it's, it's a different measure. You know, it, it's not 
it's not about saying if you don't eat your peas and your carrots, you can't have dessert. That's a rule. That's okay. What it really is, it's about saying that and then saying, you know, it's chocolate chip. It's your favorite. Eat your peas and carrots. Now, do you think you're going to be able to do this and grow up and be strong like your big brother, big sister? Okay, I'm going to eat all the ice cream, right? It, it, it's, it's okay to say if you don't eat your peas and carrots, you can't have a scoop of ice cream for dessert. What's not okay is to try to get the child to choose it by any means necessary. I had a client many, many, many years ago who struggled with an eating disorder. And we were talking about boundaries in the home. They'd been through many reputable programs prior to meeting with me in outpatient therapy very early on in my career. And when I was talking about some of the boundaries and some of the structure, the parents said to me, specifically the mother said to me, you know, Brad, you might not know this. I know you're young, you're new to this, but eating disorders are about control. And so if we, if we set these boundaries, we're just going to engage the, the disorder, the disease, the control. And I said, I'm not sure that that's true, that, we're, that if we set these boundaries that we're controlling. And then I went on to quote this particular parent. I said, when you tell your daughter that she's disgusting, which she had said, when you tell her that you would have never done this to your mother, when you tell her that no boy is ever going to love her, with this ugly disease, that's controlling. But saying if you don't maintain a certain potassium level and you can't have your car or can't be on the cheer squad, that's not controlling. That's a limit and a boundary. And it's okay. So see, it's not about the boundary you said. That's why when people ask me the question, what should be the curfew? How many hours of social media? Should I let them have the computer? On and on and on. It's not the question. It's not the right question. You can have all sorts of choices within all of those examples and be controlling because it's coming from a place of fear and control, anxiety. Or you can have those same kinds of boundaries coming from a place of assertiveness, clarity, love, letting go. And it's not controlling. It's almost impossible to get it right when it comes from fear. And it's almost impossible to get it wrong when it comes from a place of love and courage. I, I said this to the staff that, that we're going through the staff training yesterday when I was talking about kind of the pitfalls of an early staff member. It's the staff member that, that shared with that asked me if she could share with the the students her feelings about the way they were treating the environment because she was very committed to to our planet to earth to conservation to, to low impact camping and she said can I can I call a group and share an I feel statement I said why she said well I, I want them to stop being more respectful they're walking all over the plants the cryptobiotic soil and I said then let's just move camp let's just let them know that if they don't start doing it we're going to have to move camp to a less sensitive and vulnerable part of the desert but don't tell them how you feel. Try to trying to imply that it's their job to make you feel better. Just set a boundary, take care of yourself. Have a consequence. And I, I think for many of us, 
it's kind of a shift away from uh, earlier generations where people didn't talk about feelings. Maybe where, where our feelings weren't heard or, or listened to as children, where we think it's more enlightened to share our feelings with our children and somehow we're, we're, we're being a more progressive parent. And, and sharing and exchanging feelings is okay and wonderful and important and critical, but not if the message is you need to change your behavior so that I feel better. That's the control that children are fighting against. That's why many of them can go through our program and leave our program and say, in some ways, that was the easiest place I've ever lived in my life. And I never felt more free. Even though the limits, the structure, the consequences were much harder than they've been anywhere else. But there were staff, and believe me, they have a huge advantage of being staff compared to being a parent because it's a lot harder to do with your own children, I know for sure. They had staff that were more detached and weren't, weren't interested in getting the children to believe and adhere to their values, but rather more consistent with setting boundaries that, 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 that taught or illustrated this. And the child could hate the, hate the consequences all along the way. Quite commonly, at the end of a presentation on communication and consequences, a parent will say, but I think I've done all this. I'm not perfect, but I've done all of this and none of it worked. So let's explore this question. What if you do everything right and it still doesn't work? It is critical to remember that it's not about you. Healthy parenting is its own reward. It creates better life for you and for your family. As I've said, being a healthy parent means being a better mother, father, brother, sister, and friend, a better person. This is the goal of healthy parenting, to be the best parent and human being that you can be. And finally, the trick is to let go of holding yourself responsible for your children while still holding yourself responsible for what you do. So what are the take-homes? Focus on yourself. Focusing on yourself is the best way to positively impact your child. It's the best way to get the outcomes that you want. It's counterintuitive. It seems like the long way home, but it changes everything. When you make yourself the project and not your child the project, it's an incredible liberating experience for both of you, quite frankly. And then they don't have the burden of carrying your esteem, your sense of self on their shoulders. Hope, and for that matter, all emotions, is your responsibility. Anxiety is your responsibility. Getting a good night's sleep is your job. Be wary of parenting using emotions and from unchecked, unfiltered emotions especially. I've said this a lot lately. And I'm almost to the point, I've almost gotten to the point where I don't want parents ever to tell the children how they feel. Not because, again, I don't think that there's value in the exchange of emotions, but because of the intent that is underneath most people's expression of emotions. Write and and work on your own relapse prevention plan. Make that your focus. Know your triggers and your common pitfalls. You know, when you make yourself the project, it's a real relief to your child. They don't have to take care of you. They're not the only project, right? They don't have the added burden in this quest to get healthier and be better of taking care of you. 
It can just be about them. Read things, go to meetings, go to therapy if you're willing to watch the webinars, podcasts, listen to podcasts, um, learn about communication intentions, learn to listen better. We can all do better, right? Just do your work. Reactiveness, anger, anxiety, and obsessing are warning signs that you're not on your side of the street. Ask tough questions of yourself. Allow yourself to be asked tough questions. Why? Oftentimes when parents say, should I do this or should I do that? And my response is, well, why would you tell your child that? Why would you say that? And that simple question is saying, if you're trying to get them to feel or think or believe a certain thing, you you might rethink that. If you're trying to get clear, to connect, to create better awareness, to let go, maybe it's okay. Don't focus as much on the what to do, but more on the why to do it. When I'm working with parents about aftercare planning, about decisions, about boundaries, about time on the computer, so forth and so on, should they be allowed to hang around friends? My question often is it's not what you do, like I said earlier. It's why you're doing it. If you're doing it because you believe that you can control it, it's almost never going to work. If you're doing it because it arises out of your truth, your values, your healthy self-care, excuse me, then it's almost always okay. All right, I'm happy for any live questions that that may have come in. If not, uh, I can go to the end and uh, take some questions after I do the upcoming event slide. No live questions at this time. All right. We would like to ask, we, we, we ask you to attend six 12-step support groups, any combination, while your child is with us, as soon as possible. Tell your Evoke therapist about it. Tell your child about it, perhaps. Any combination of Al-Anon, Coda, or Families Anonymous. <clears throat> Go to the web. Search meeting times in your area. There are often many, many choices in most, most metropolitan areas. You can also... Excuse me. You can also go to NAMI.org to find free and affordable resources in your area on parenting and other mental health support for you and your family. On social media, all of these broadcasts are available on the podcast app on an iPhone. Go to the, the podcast app and search Evoke Therapy Programs on an Android device. Download the SoundCloud app and search Evoke Therapy Programs on a computer. Go to SoundCloud.com and search Evoke Therapy Programs. Find us on Twitter and Instagram. At Evoke Therapy on Facebook, you can search Evoke Therapy programs. Find the Evoke Family Foundation on Facebook. And then, of course, go to our blog uh, for new content. Um, My book, The Journey of the Heroic Parent, is available on Amazon. Also, audio versions are, are available there. We would like to ask all parents that possibly can come to a workshop, an experiential multifamily workshop while your child is in the program. Talk to your therapist about that and a potential field visit that that might um, also happen at the same time. The next one is at our Cascades, Oregon program, September 22nd, 23rd. Email melanie at evoketherapy.com for more information or to RSVP. If you want to do a deep dive, I have some new things to announce here. If you want to do a deep dive, you can go to Finding You. The next Finding You that, that has some openings is October 17th through 21st. And then you can look at our, our 
intensives page on our website. I am going to be running the Finding You 2 and the Alumni Intensive. These are new, newly announced. We have one spot, I believe, in October, a couple of spots in November. So if, if you've been to any intensive, these are available to you. It's, it's an advanced version. Um, invite you to come. And, and for the first time ever, we're also going to have these intensives for alumni, students, and clients. So if your child went through the program, and this is not a wilderness experience. This is the, the intensive experience at our lodge in Park City, Utah. And I'll be running these. They can come to our alumni intensive December 12th through 16th or January 20th through 21st. An email blast will go out in the next couple of days to, to invite you to that. But you can also go and email intensives at evoketherapy.com. <clears throat> Excuse me. Go to our website for more information. Upcoming parent support groups will be in New York in November, Birmingham, Alabama, October 26th, Chicago, Illinois, Tuesday, November 6th, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, November 14th. Excuse me. Email melanie at evoketherapy.com for more information or to RSVP. Pursuit trips for families or young adults, international adventure trips, 7 to 14 days, therapy light, sober fun. Any other questions come in, Alex, while we've been talking? <coughs> Got a tickle in my throat. I apologize. No questions. All right, folks. Thanks for joining us. A lot of people showed up tonight. Thanks for and on behalf of your children, your willingness. Your, it's a great model to continue to be a student. It's the best way to encourage them to take down their barriers, their walls, and their armor is for you to take down yours. So thank you. Next week, next Thursday, I'm going to be talking about Evokes therapy model, what that looks like, how we do it here. So look forward to that. Have a great weekend, folks, and I'll talk to you next week. Take care.